This morning, my task is to continue a series that we started four weeks ago that we're calling The Struggle is Real. And uh, we as a church are trying to figure out what it looks like to come to better terms with the reality that no matter who you are, no matter what you do, it is inevitable that you will walk through some hard seasons of life. And if we don't come to terms with that, if we don't embrace that reality, then when difficult things invade our lives, they will run the risk of disappointing us or even derailing us. They run the risk of discouraging us because we start to believe, well, this is not supposed to happen. Or it looks like I'm the only person going through this and everybody else in the church is strong the way good Christians should be. And that will have a way of discouraging us. And so we've spent a lot of time in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this masterclass on what it looks like to to think about struggle and hardship from God's Perspective. And man, we've seen that the hardships and difficulty and struggle, as much as we do not love them at all, are one of God's favorite ways to introduce His grace to us in real and meaningful ways. It's one of God's ways to, to, to put His power on display when we feel most weak and we feel most broken. And so Paul ends up saying, So, I'm starting to embrace my weaknesses because it's in my weaknesses that I experience God's grace. It's in my weaknesses that I see God's power at work in me. And if we as a church start to lean into Paul's words, we might find ourselves looking around in the moments of hardship and moments of weakness and just asking where is grace showing up because this is where it shows up best. Where is God's power on display in my life? Because it's in these seasons that he says his power is made most perfect. But this morning we want to uh, jump into the Old Testament and look at uh, the story of an individual named Elijah. Because we want to ask what does grace and struggle, what does power and hardship, what does this actually look like in the lives of real people like us? And so... We want to jump into the story of um, an individual named Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 17 is where we are going to start. And we'll span a couple of chapters as we drop in on different scenes in Elijah's story. But if you have a copy of the Bible, we'll start in chapter 17 of 1 Kings. If you don't have a copy, the verses will appear on the screen and you can follow along um, that way. But let me just give you a little bit of context for what it is we're going to see. When we jump into this story, Israel is in a dark era of their spiritual history. Uh, They've had some really, really bad kings, but seated on the throne right now is an individual by the name of Ahab, who was considered to be worse than all of the worst kings put together. He has no regard for God. In fact, he's gone on a little bit of a mission uh, to, 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 to force the Israelites to worship idols. And then he's taken it a step further. He's uh, gotten into an alliance with a super shady king. And to seal the deal, he's married this king's psychopathic daughter. uh, A woman after whom you would never name your little girl. uh, Because her name has become synonymous with evil. Um, Jezebel. And I'm sorry, by the way, if you happen to name your child Jezebel. She's she's beautiful. She's different. Um, (laughs) 
Jezebel is crazy in her own right. And she manages to persuade Ahab to zone in on her favorite God. Let's make my favorite God the God of Israel. And this God's name is Baal. Baal. Um, considered the God of rain and fertility. He rides on the clouds. And he is apparently in charge of the weather system. And you can understand in an agricultural um, context, it's not going to be too hard to convince people to follow Baal because you want to be in good with whoever sends rain on your crops so your stuff can grow and the economy can thrive. Baal, but man, Baal drove a hard bargain, was not easy to follow. If you wanted to get in good with Baal, if you wanted Baal to send rain um, on your land, then man... You had to do some crazy stuff. And I'll keep it PG by saying one of the requirements was that you would um, mutilate yourself to make him happy. Um, or even go so far as to sacrifice your very offspring in order to make him smile and send rain. And that was the dark cultural context in which this story is set. So anyway, when chapter 17 of 1 Kings opens up, this guy by the name of Elijah emerges almost out of nowhere. No one has heard of this guy before. He shows up and somehow manages to get an audience with cray-cray King Ahab and his psycho wife Jezebel. He steps into their presence in the throne room and he delivers delivers a message to them. This is how he tries to make friends and influence people. This is 1 Kings um, chapter 17. It says, uh, verse 1, Now Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, this is what he says to them, true story, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Wow. So if we learn anything about this stranger, Elijah, we learn he is a bold, bold dude. Um, you could not have given a more antagonistic, a more triggering speech than that to Ahab and Jezebel. So anyway, uh, there's only one true God in Israel. And um, he's uh, the God that uh, I serve. Yes, you heard that right. Uh, I have rejected your invitation to, to jump ship and to worship your fake Baal God. I worship the true God of Israel. Anyway, I'm getting off the point. I actually came to tell y'all that um, there's not going to be any rain or any moisture of any kind until I say so. Okay? Mm, bye. And then he leaves. I can imagine <laughs> Ahab is sitting on his throne just like, looks at Jezebel. Jezzers and slaps his, you know, thigh. <laughs> That's a good one. You almost got me to you and your practical jokes. He was good. He was, it's not going to rain till I say so. <laughs> and he looks at Jezebel. Jezebel's looking at him like, boo-boo. You know, I don't mess with rain. I don't tell rain jokes. And by the time they figure out, like, wait, he's not your guy. He's not your guy. 
Elijah is gone. But imagine how infuriating Elijah's words would have been to them. There's only one real God and it's not your God. He's my God. And oh, there's not even going to be any dew in the... You don't mess with people's dew. Coke may be... Dad jokes. But... He says to them, there's going to be no moisture of any kind, not even humidity in the air until I say so. And there is nothing your God of the clouds, your God of the rain, Baal, is going to be able to do about it. And then he leaves. They are so angry, they begin an immediate international manhunt. Find this man, Elijah, and kill him. How dare he say something like this? But they can't find the dude anywhere. So Jezebel gets so frustrated that she actually starts to hunt down any prophet in the land who has anything to do with the God of Israel. And she starts executing them. But she has no clue where Elijah is. But we know where Elijah is because the Bible tells us um, where he is. Um, Second part of verse 5 says, chapter 17, he, Elijah, went to the Kerith Ravine east of the Jordan and he stayed there. The Bible's the best. Here's what it says. The ravens, like the birds, brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from The brook. Wow. While Elijah is in hiding. On the run for his life. God shows up. Because he loves to show up in those situations. And he provides for him in one of those ways. Like only God could possibly have thought that up. And pulled it off. He grub hubs. He he uber eats Elijah. By sending birds. To cater his breakfast. And his dinner, he eats in the morning as birds deliver. And then in the evening, apparently this uh, gave Koza intermittent fasting or whatever he's doing. Um, That's how Elijah survived. So almost about a year or so, we would guess. That's insane. After a while, uh, the brook dries up. So Elijah has nothing to drink on account of the thing that he had said about the rain, etc. And so uh, he leaves that place and he goes and he finds a widow. And uh, this widow has a son, a little boy. And when he runs into them, they are in the midst of making their final meal. They have a little bit of flour left in a jar, a little bit of water left, enough for one last meal before they just brace themselves to die. Because it's a famine and no one has any food. Elijah ends up living with them, maybe for a couple of years. And while he's there, God shows up in this crisis again. And God does a thing where she has an unending supply of flour. No matter how much flour she uses, no matter how much water she uses, it never runs out. God continues to keep it filled. And that's how they live for those couple of years. While Elijah is there, um, her son gets sick and then gets sicker and then gets a little sicker and eventually. Eventually, he dies. 
Mama here, who's already buried her husband, is so devastated by this, she turns on Elijah and says, it is your fault that my son is dead. So Elijah goes to God and begs God, would you please do the miraculous? Would you please put your power on display in this situation? Want to talk about weakness? Want to talk about brokenness? And God says, yes, raises the boy from the dead to life and hands him back to his mother. Because God is uber super powerful and loves to put his power on display. Um, After about a couple of years or so, we would guess. God speaks to Elijah. God speaks to Elijah and tells him, all right, buddy, it's time. Time for what? Time for you to go back and face King Ahab. And so Elijah does. He leaves and goes back and faces King Ahab, a.k.a. the guy who's been hunting him all over the world looking to kill him. Elijah obeys God just in this incredible act of courageous obedience. Stands before um, Ahab and uh, he doesn't say, man, I just want to apologize. My bad. I shouldn't have rolled up like that three years ago. Nope. He doesn't ask him, hey, how's it going? Just checking in because he knows it's not going well at all. What Elijah does is he issues a challenge to Ahab. He says, hey, let's do something where we find out once and for all who's the real and the true God of Israel. So I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's meet on top of Mount Carmel. I will come by myself and you all can bring all 850 of Baal's prophets. And we'll get up there. We'll issue this mountaintop challenge. And the winner, that's the real God. Sadly, Ahab actually believes that Baal is a god because he agrees to this. Says, yeah, let's go up and let's have this challenge. And um, Elijah lays out the terms of this challenge. This is, um, this is uh, crazy. Um, he tells them, hey, this is what's going to happen. Um, uh, your prophets uh, will get a bull, an animal, and they will put it on the altar. I'll get an animal and I will put it on an altar. None of us will light fire to these sacrifices. We'll just pray to our gods. And the God who answers by fire, that's the real God. Uh, Now for you, Baal, the God of the weather, this should be no problem. Ahab says, sounds good to me. And so they meet at the top of Mount Carmel and the face-off is on. Let's get ready to rumble. 850 prophets versus one dude, Elijah. This is the face-off. Who is the real God of Israel? And so the battle begins. Oh man, this is verse number 36, um, 1 Kings chapter uh, 18. Um, So, uh, Elijah stands up there. The prophets stand up there. And uh, you're going to see what happens here in a second. Because prior to this, obviously, the the, the prophets of Baal, they put their stuff on the wood. Uh, They put their animal on the wood. They cut it to pieces and they start begging their God. Please light it on fire. Baal, please light it on fire. And they scream and they dance and they carry on for six hours and there's just absolute silence. After six hours, Elijah actually loses his patience and he starts talking trash to them. 
uh, like, like godly trash to them. And he starts mocking their God a little bit. It's like, I don't know, you guys. Maybe you want to shout a little louder. Uh, for some reason, they can't hear you. Maybe he's gone on a trip with his family to Disney. Uh, I don't know. Like, um, maybe he's sleeping. Elijah actually says that. Like, maybe he's napping. Who knows? Your God might be tired. Maybe he's going potty. We don't know. You guys might want to shout a little louder. And they actually say, okay. And they start yelling louder. And they start mutilating themselves. For a number of hours more and nothing happens. Eventually, Elijah steps up, says, "Um, okay, my turn. Builds an altar of stones. um, Cuts a bull into pieces. Stacks wood on the altar. Lays the bull on top of the wood. And then he has a trench dug around the altar On top of the mountain. And then. He doesn't just stack the wood. He stacks the odds. Elijah asks for 12 jars full of water. And says pour the water on the altar. And they do it. 12 jars of water. In the middle of a famine by the way. 12 jars of water. I can imagine. You know, um, the, the, the prophets are just wondering, like, what is this crazy dude doing? Uh, check this out. This is what it says. Um, verse number 36. Again, it was up there a moment ago. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed. Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today. That you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Again, I can imagine the prophets of Baal like this guy. He's just talking to his God. He's not yelling. He's not carrying around, carrying on. He's not hurting himself. And he's also drenched the altar with water. That is such a rookie move in a fire contest. You never do this. This is never going to. This is amazing. Fire of God falls down from the sky and it consumes everything. Check this out. Verse number 39. When all the people's. Um, I think I'm missing a verse. Um, Answer me, Lord. Uh, Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. And it also licked up the water in the trench. The fire of God falls down on that place and so do the people. They fall on their faces. Verse number 39, when all the people saw this, they fell uh, prostrate. I'm always scared of that word. And they cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And that's how that story ends. God won, Baal zero. Just kidding. The story actually ends when Elijah goes old school on these prophets. And he has all 850 of them Eliminated from the face of the planet down in the valley. And then the story ends. That's an incredible story. 
I'm kidding. That's not how the story ends. The story actually ends when fire has fallen down and then God says, okay, Elijah gives the word, the clouds open up and rain falls down. Famine is over. So awesome. So awesome. Unless you're Jezebel. She hears about this story and she is furious, embarrassed, and super vindictive. Ahab goes back home and it says he tells his wife everything that had happened. And then we went up on top of the mountain and then there's water and it was like, and then fire, boom, honey. And then it was awesome. Not as awesome as your God, Baal, but it was awesome. And then it and then Elijah, he said this, and then these people said this, and then it happened like this, and oh, boo-boo, I'm sorry, but he killed all 850 of your prophets. But then anyway, look, now the old man is storing, it's raining, it's pouring. Check this thing out. She is furious with the events of that day. And so in her anger, she, uh, she DMs Elijah. She sends him. This, this, this message with this really hilarious threat to the man of God who just saw fire come down from heaven. This is just very, very amusing if you ask me. Um, here's the note she sends to him. This is a threat. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 2. So Jezebel uh, sent a messenger, I told you DM, Facebook messenger to Elijah to say... May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like one of those prophets of mine that you killed. This is so funny to me. She's like, I swear, don't swear kids, but I swear on the gods who just lost royally on top of the mountain. I swear by those gods that... I'm going to kill you tomorrow. Not today because mama got things to do. But tomorrow, I am going to kill you. That's it. This was so hilarious to me on so many different fronts. A, she's been on an international manhunt to try and find Elijah, but she couldn't get a drop on him. She had no idea where he was. Now, apparently, she knows exactly where he is. And she sends a messenger with a note. I'm like, why not send an execution group to go and take him out right now? Because this is an empty threat. She is saying something that she does not believe she could possibly pull off. And so obviously when, <laughs> when Elijah gets this message, I mean, you would imagine this little weak threat he gets from a woman who really can't do anything uh, to him. When he gets this threat, you know, obviously after fire from God came down and everything. You can imagine and you can understand that Elijah's natural response to this threat is to freak out and run for his life. This little note sends Elijah into such a deep and dark depression that he wants his life to be over. And I'm like, what? True story. 
Verse number three, Elijah was so afraid that he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Went into the wilderness and he came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than any of my ancestors. What? After what you just saw God do like yesterday o'clock. You're afraid of one crazy lady's empty threats like what? He runs for his life and he wants his life to be over. That's how depressed he is. Talking about I've had enough. Enough. Elijah. Ravens brought you food. A boy was raised from death to light. Fire fell from heaven. And now rain is falling on your head. And you are saying, what? I've had enough. I'm so done, God. I don't even want to be here anymore. He has such an emotional Break down, so down that he wants to be done with the whole thing. And that is what I wanted us to see. And I don't mean Elijah's response. I mean mine. I don't mean Elijah's response. I mean Yours. I'm not talking about Elijah's response. I'm talking about the church's response. Because Elijah, man of God, the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, matter of fact, the individual who represented the prophetic office, Elijah. After all that God has done, Elijah. After fire from the sky, and after rain falls, and after you saw a kid healed, and after the, 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 the birds catered to you, after everything God has done, Elijah, you are not allowed to have that kind of a breakdown. Godly people are not allowed to have moments like this. Elijah, what? 
Mm. I thought you were a... I'm not talking about his response. I'm talking about mine. I'm talking about yours. You're a good Christian in the church after everything God has done and the ways that he's provided for you and he's been there in the, you are not allowed to. And it's like the spirit of the living God called me out on this, even as I was in the process of preparing. You are part of a culture that is so obsessed with the highs and the highlights. And those are the pieces of our stories that we want to share and we want to show. Those are the things we want to talk about when we're at church. Those are the things we want to post. Those are the things we want to lead with. Those are the evidences that you have lots of faith and you are following out. We are so obsessed with a strong and the high and the highlight and the Instagrammable moments. So that's all you see and that's all you want to share. And you end up denying or downplaying the hard parts in your own stories and in the stories of others. And it's now how you read the Bible. Yeah, the struggle is not real, but I mean, not for him. And so when you read the Bible, that's how you read it. Highlights and downplaying pain and downplaying difficulty. And that's how you treat yourselves. And that's how you interact with each other. And if you don't believe it, I'll prove it. Here's a story. Elijah, (laughs) he bursts into the throne room of Ahab and Jezebel with godly courage. And he takes a stand for his God. Amen. And then he is immediately dislodged. He is immediately displaced from anything that would have resembled home or friends or family for three years. I'm just asking you, have you ever been pulled away from any semblance of safety or home or familiarity for three years? How would you field. I'm just asking. Elijah. But then Elijah, he gets the ravens from heaven to cater his meals in the morning and in the evening. Oh, that is so good. Mm -hmm. If I told you that you could have birds deliver your breakfast and your dinner for a year, but here's the catch. You don't get to see or speak to another person for that entire year. It would be you alone. Would you take the deal? 
no way. So stop it with, but the birds were feeding him. Elijah would say, it was in the morning and it was in the evening. For the rest of the day, I was left with my own thoughts and the invasion of paranoia with every rustling sound behind me, believing that it's a soldier who's finally got a drop on me and is here to kill me for a year. Would you take that deal? Do you know what it's like to live with this constant sense of paranoia and the economy may get worse and my retirement may not um, show up and, and I don't know what may happen or what may happen next and anxiety is your portion. Do you know what it's like to experience deep loneliness? By the way, only to have somebody read your story at church and say, Ooh, I saw that you had a get-together yesterday. That was like 30 minutes. The rest of my week was loneliness. But that's how we read stories. Oh, but then Elijah, he got to go to this widow's house and he experienced this never-ending supply of food. How awesome would that be? For me, first of all, like water and flour for like two years, I'm out. For you gluten-free people, you're like, why is that even in the Bible? (laughs) But besides all of that, while he's there, this little boy gets sick and the little boy dies. And this hurting mom turns on him and says, my son's death is on you. Have you ever had to carry the false accusation of something that you didn't do? Have you ever lovingly tried to have a conversation with your friend and they misconstrued your honesty as an attempt to sabotage their happiness and they blamed you for something? Have you ever tried to raise a teenager only to have that person turn to you and say, you are the worst parent ever? Of course not, unless you've raised a teenager. This was Elijah's experience. And for those three years, by the way, do you know how many times God spoke to him? Zero. Didn't hear anything from God. I'm not saying God didn't send supplies. God didn't send birds. But he didn't hear anything from God. And then when God finally comes to speak to him, God says, all right, buddy, it's time. Yes! Woo! Finally! Oh, no, not time for that. It's time for you to go from hardship to war. You need to go face the guy who's trying to kill you. And you're going to be in a battle against 850 people and none of them like you. But fire fell down from heaven, Elijah. Yeah. That's a part of the story y'all want to talk about. It's just me up here. Nobody else. By the time Jezebel pens that note. Come on, stop it. Can you imagine how triggering that note might have been? 
How much trauma that might have called up in Elijah. I'm coming to kill you tomorrow. You've got to be kidding me. You're telling me I'm going to have to go on the run again for three more years away from the people I love into who knows what a hiding and fearing for my life the whole time. God, I am done with that. I would rather... All of a sudden... His response starts to make a little bit of sense because we are reading his story with the understanding that the struggle is real, y'all. All of a sudden, his story makes sense. And I just came to say, imagine if we truly, truly embrace the reality, the biblical reality that the struggle is real. Life is is hard. Imagine how you might listen to other people's stories. Imagine how you might dare to reread your own story. Imagine how you might consider giving yourself a little more grace. Oh, you're a Christian. Okay, man, I heard you share something. That was really powerful. And... Um, Man, I've seen pictures on Instagram. Your family is beautiful. That's true. But man, the things my dad said to me growing up. My parents' divorce and the way that impacted and wounded me. The way I was mocked in high school. The way I was rejected from that sports team in middle school. You're kidding me. That's the thing you're still upset about? Elijah, you're kidding me. It's Jezebel's little note. That's what triggered you. We would start to treat ourselves with a little more grace. Embracing the fact that the struggle is real. Wait, the crash of 2008, that's still what has you jumpy and, and all paranoid? And we would give ourselves a little more permission like, oh my goodness, maybe. Well, I've been trying to downplay these hurt parts in me and I've been trying to deny them so I can present something more palatable for the church. I need to go back and just sit in the fact like, I'm so sorry I skipped over all of your pain to get to the high, to get to the highlight. The struggle is real. And imagine how we would start to listen to each other's stories if we stopped etching out and we started to, to think about the fact that since you last saw me last Sunday, a lot has happened. And I was thinking about this like, man, if I got up here and I shared with you all, like the things that trigger me and take me to really dark places of sadness, I don't think I'd ever share them. Why? Because they're so diabolical? No, because they feel so infantile to me. Like you're telling me that's what upset you that much? Yes, it did. Because it touched back on something that you didn't see and something before that. Wait, but pastor, didn't you share last week how the Lord, after everything the Lord has done, Stop it with what the Lord has done. I'm just hurting right now. That's all. You know, or people will be like, wait, but, but you said. That's why I love this story. Elijah goes from fire fell down to his sitting under a broom tree. Like, please, somebody take my life. Same dude. 
within potentially the span of the week. Do you know how much happens in each person's story between now and the last time you saw them? And we're cruel enough to just, let's just tell me the highlights. Let's just put together the highlights. The majority of my week was not highlights. I just try and capture those because I know that's what we like to hear. That's like what we like to talk about. The struggle is real. Um, I'm going to say one more thing and I'll let you guys go because um, I don't want to be the source of your struggle. Um, mm. This is uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, second part of verse 5. Because Elijah is sitting under a tree and he's suicidal after everything God has done. Okay, verse number five, second part, all at once, an angel, this is God's response, touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. (laughs) We could spend a year in that section of scripture. We won't, but we could. This is so beautiful. Man of God, Elijah, what? God shows up and what's God's response? Do you know how God responds to Elijah's breakdown? He cooks him breakfast. He cooks him breakfast. While Elijah is sleeping, breakfast is cooking. I love that it's over hot coals. It's not a miracle like and then bread was made. No, bread was cooked. Which I like to imagine God is just sitting while Elijah is hurting. Wait, you didn't show up and say, after everything I've done for you, after all the promises I've given you in my word, that's not your first response. No, because he meets us with grace. His grace meets us in our struggle. He leads with grace. And for some of you, you've never pictured God this way. He's not coming like the church folk do to remind you about all the things he did and why you should fix yourself and act up. Really, No. Cooks him breakfast. I love that. Just sits there. (laughs) And one of my favorite things about this passage is it says that. And uh, Elijah got up. Ate some God cooked breakfast. Angel cuisine. And then. (laughs) This is in the Bible. Check it out. It may still be on the screen. I don't know. I can't see. And then he went back to sleep. That's the best. I love that line. Maybe one of my favorites. And he went back to sleep. He gets up, eats some breakfast. He's like, that was good. Feel better. But I'm definitely not fixed. I'm still sad. I'm going back to bed. I love, but God made you breakfast. Aren't you supposed to be better by now? Aren't you supposed to be over the grief by now? Aren't you supposed to forget about the divorce by now? Aren't you supposed to get over the breakup by now? Aren't you supposed to be over it now? Because God did something last Sunday. I saw you raising your hand in church. It's like, no, by Monday midday, I was in bed again. Struggle is real, y'all. Struggle is real. I love this. Um, Okay. 
And then uh, after he goes back to sleep, it says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him, didn't hit him, didn't mock him, just touched him, get up, made some more breakfast, eat for the journey, it's too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights and reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Mm, mm -mm. He will never get tired of cooking you breakfast, no matter how many breakdowns you have. His grace is sufficient. But um, you are definitely not fixed. You are also definitely not fired. You still have a job. There are still things he's inviting you into. I love that. He gives them and says, you need a little strength for where you need to go next. And for Elijah, it was a 40-day trip. For you, it may be four minutes of having a conversation with somebody. It may be just enough strength to go to therapy again. It may be just enough strength to talk to somebody in your missional community. It may just be enough strength to take the next step. But the invitation and the struggle is he will give you every ounce of strength you need to take the next step. I love that he, he, he moved on. And by the way, fixed is not a destination. It's just, I just have enough to take the next step in this struggle. And he'll always supply by his grace and by his power what we need to keep moving. I'm going to stop. I don't know what you need or what the Spirit is doing in you. But Father, I do pray for those of us who've maybe not even given ourselves permission to sleep, permission to grieve, permission to struggle, because we've become convinced we're supposed to be fixed or we're supposed to be something else. The struggle is real and your grace is even more so. I pray that you would meet us in the places of our pain, in the places of our struggle, and we would smell that heavenly aroma of bread being baked over coals as you just pour your love and grace over us again and again and again. And I pray, Lord, that your grace may be enough for us to take the steps that we need. And that your grace will be enough for us to show grace to other people in their struggle, in their journey, as they continue to live in the reality of a fallen and broken world. We praise you for your grace. We thank you for your power that shows up in weaknesses. Commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.